Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Before we start, remind you of now the 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 repeated point about the role that the thirtieth part of the Quran plays in laying down the foundational principles upon which all else is to be built. This does not mean that the 30th part is exclusively the foundation, nor does it mean that everything in the 30th part is part of the foundation. As we have already seen, much of it is demonstrative of foundational ideas, of fundamental notions, fundamental notions of good and bad. As I often raise in classes and in discussions, and as has been raised throughout Islamic history, that the Quran talks about good and bad justice and injustice as if they are self-defining concepts, as if they are self-evident. True that the Quran refers to fitra, intuition, or instinct as a means to recognizing the truth, but Recognizing, when we say recognizing, to recognize something presupposes that it already exists in some format and it only needs to be identified. But even more, these fundamental notions, foundational notions, are in fact, although not defined, but demonstrated throughout the Quranic text, and particularly in the 30th part of the Quran. So when you read about al-fasiqun, the inequities, you read about batil or haq or ihsan or zulm, all terminology that connotes a state of affairs that is not necessarily defined precisely. But... If you, if you delve sufficiently into the text of the Qur'an, you discover that it is demonstrated for you. That there are demonstrative examples for what it means to be in a state of inequity. In the last couple of halakas, we talked about personality types. Personality types that frequently demonstrate a, not a, an extreme sense, because actually it's not extreme, it's quite common, but a serious sense of being astray from the very principle, from the very idea we started out with, the Sirat al-Mustaqim. Personality types that are petty, personality types that are uh, vengeful, personality types that uh, construct their very identity, their very self-definition in a fashion that brings upon them sometimes the derision of Allah 
And as we saw, sometimes the outright condemnation with no chance of reprieve. And we already covered that. Now we're going to talk about, inshallah, Surah Al-Fil. Now, we said we're going to do it, we're going to do, cover the 30th part in reverse order. So Surah Al-Fil, Surah Quraysh should come before Surah Al-Fil. However, um, because of the school of thought that considered the two to be intimately tied together, either in actual structure, in other words, consider them to be both part of the same surah, and there is no two surahs, uh, or the school of thought that considered them to be part and parcel of the same meaning, very much like Qul Azra Rabbil Falaq, Qul Azra Rabbil Nas, I mean, they're, they're, they complement each other. It made would make very little sense to do Surah Quraysh before Al-Fil. We need to do really Al-Fil before Quraysh. So we need to skip over Quraysh to get to the field. Now, be aware that we there is material that I clearly ascribe to certain scholars. And the interpretive theories are so mingled with the, the, the ishtihad of the earlier scholars are so mingled with the ishtihad of my teachers and that is so mingled with my own ishtihad that it becomes impossible when we talk about the interpretive sections to separate one from the other. So lest I, I became worried uh, at, over the week for reasons that, that you might think that I am simply transmitting without any personal ishtihad of my own. That would not be accurate. Um, <clears throat> my, my, my education and ijazah as a teacher is not to do that. I am not a, a mujaz as, a, mujaz means license, as a, as a transmitter. I am not a muhaddis. And I do not play the role of a muhaddis. A muhaddis transmits literally, but does not at all intervene with what is being transmitted. Uh, that is not uh, what I am. So be well aware that even when I give you the opinion of another, it is because it is mingled with my own ishtihad. Uh, what does that mean? It means that you take it for what it's worth and the case with anyone else. If you're from Ahl al-Hadith, it means it's worthless. Because nothing is worth anything unless it's transmitted directly from the Prophet or the companions or something. But if you're from the Ahl al-Hadith, then you have no place in this halaqa. You're not, then you take it for what it's worth and you understand that we believe that human enlightenment, very much like Allah's creation, comes from a dynamic process of interaction and friction. And that it is part and parcel of Allah's wonders in the world. That the past needs the present as much as the future needs the present. And the present needs the future because it, there is no present. The present doesn't go anywhere without the future. And the present needs the past. 
In other words, that every part of creation is intimately tied into every other part of creation, both in nature and in thought, which we consider to be a part of nature as well. So the, the human intellect, in other words, is not an aberration from Allah's creation. And that's, that's, that's one of the core distinctions between Ahl al-Hadith and al-Usuli, is that human intellect, al-Aql, is not considered some type of deformity or, or side product that uh, is not part of the intended plan of Allah. But in fact, the intellect or al-Aql is considered the part and parcel of Allah's creation. From the very beginning, this was intended. And that the reason aql creates evil is because without its ability to create evil, it wouldn't have an ability to create good. And consequently, evil is the side product. That is, is sort of, it's, it's like the carbon monoxide that is necessary for the car to function. Uh, but you can't, you can't say because we have carbon monoxide, so let's not put fuel in the car. Uh, and that's the main distinction. Because among the Ahlul Hadith, the, the Aql itself has no role. That the Aql is very much like uh, the Nifaya, the, the waste product uh, that, must, that must be cleansed out and so on. One, I mean, to be quite honest with you, Usulis rarely, I mean, they're not unified on this, but Usulis rarely believe in the idea of evil in the first place, but that's something else, okay? They just simply believe in the absence of good, but they don't believe in evil. But let's leave that aside. But that evil is, in, is, in, is a necessary byproduct in order for good to exist. In, in other words, that the reason there are evil thoughts is that so you will have good thoughts. Now, we, we, I don't want to get into exactly the technicalities because we're not at this stage at all yet. But the way it eventually boils down to is that if you become licensed to do naql only, to transmit only, then what you do is you go around saying, I heard from my teacher, Khalid al-Fadl, that Ibn al-Abbas said, Etc. Etc. That's just knock. You, you wouldn't be authorized to do anything more. You would simply say, "I heard from my teacher that Ibn Taymiyyah's opinion was." If you get the higher license, the the license beyond that, then you may mingle your ideas with the ideas of the teacher of your teacher, and mix them together, and come up with. My view about the matter is such and such. So, but this is all the, the rules of transmission or if, uh, the, the, the communication of religious knowledge, which we're, we're not at that stage of all yet. Surah Al-Fil. Alam tara kaifa fa'ala rabbuka bi ashab al-fil. As you would expect, there is again the same type of disagreement as to whether this surah was revealed in Medina or Mecca. And the same disagreements usually follow 
or are, are reflected over Surat Quraysh, the Ilafi Quraysh. In the same format, the majority said that Surat Al-Fil is Meccan. While a few, like the Haq, among the early uh, transmitters of the Quranic Ilm, said that it was revealed in Medina. In all likelihood, it was revealed in Mecca, and in all likelihood, Surat Al-Fil is from the early Meccan period. أَلَمْ تَرَى كَيْفَ فَعَلَ رَبُّكَ بِأَصْحَابِ الْفِيلِ Note here immediately a couple of things. Do you not see how your Lord have done with the people of the elephant, the companions of the elephant? A simple notion. But it embodies several subtleties immediately. Note the use of the word Rabbuka. And we learned already that the distinction between Rabbuka and Ilahaka or Ilahuka in some format is what? The derivation from Ilah and the derivation from Rabb is what? What's the distinction? More magnanimous, objective, detached, while Rabb is more caretaking. This is, comes from the word, uh, uh, the, when you say Murabbiya, the, the upbringing. Okay. Murabi is an upbringing. So, Rab, and here we, we immediately note that the concept of Allah that is being invoked is Allah as a Rab, as a caretaker. It is when Allah has done something in an intimate, dynamic, with a certain people. This is the notion of Allah that is being invoked here, and it will make sense in light of the rest of the surah. Once again, bringing to mind that Allah functions in the same in the fashion of Qulhu Allahu Ahad as objective, uplifted, detached, objectified from Allah's creation and creatures, but Allah also functions in the role as a Rabb, a caretaker, an upbringer, someone who interacts dynamically with those who seek Allah out. So this is the first thing, is that we notice that this, this intimacy is being invoked. Second is we notice that it refers to the companions of the elephant. Now, if you knew nothing at all but the Quran itself, and that's it, would you have any idea who the companions of the elephant are? No. So we note that it taps into a context. It taps into a context. And the people of the elephant are not mentioned elsewhere in the Quran. So you can't say that one part of the Quran is going to interpret another part of the Quran for us. It, one part of the Quran invokes a context, assuming that you would know the context. Now note how many things just come up in this simple matter. As 
Ibn Khaldun, among others, have noted this creates the imperative of studying history. Because then when it says, have you not seen what your God has done with the people of the elephant? Then it has created an imperative upon you to, to study the past, to see. Right? So, this is one. Two, it has created the imperative of understanding the context. This re, this rever, re, this refers back to the old argument between those who argued that the Quran must be interpreted without context at all. In other words, you take the literal meaning of the word without any reference to context. And those who said, you can't, the Quran does not lend itself to an acontextual interpretation. So you, you notice immediately that it is referring to a context and it is referring to history. And context is different than history. Because context might tell you what the words are invoking specifically. But to have historical understanding, you, might, you need to go much further than that. So context, in order to understand context, you might only need to know that there was someone called Abraha and he, he went with an elephant to try to destroy the Kaaba. That's context. But history is to understand how Abraha came to power. Was he from Yemen or from Ethiopia, the Habasha? Who did he topple in order to come to power? What incentives, what historical dynamics went into his decision to try to destroy Mecca? All of this is history. This is depth. And when people wondered about why is it that Arabs, among which Islam started, who had no notion of history beyond folklore, oral transmit, folkloric transmissions, suddenly became <clears throat> so interested in history that they wrote tons of books of history, even the most the majority of which are not even published today, volumes upon volumes, it is because the Quranic text itself, as it as the Quran very much set into motion Islamic jurisprudence, they set into motion the, the whole inquiry into logic, set into motion the, the, the whole inquiry into grammar of the language, and also set into motion into motion the whole inquiry into history. Okay. Now the third thing that strikes us about the first verse is Alam Tara. Have you not seen? Now, of course, one can use it stylistically or as a matter of rhetorical question. Like when I say, don't you see, etc., etc. In other words, I am not referring to a physical perception, and I don't even mean see in terms of see, I mean see in terms of understand. Don't you understand? So I say, don't you see that the Romans were not defeated because of corruption, they were defeated because of fiscal problems. I could use it that way. And what I really mean is, don't you understand? Because there's no way you're going to see it. It is quite possible, and in fact likely that the Quran is in fact using it in this fashion. 
Don't you see? Don't you understand? But because of Surah Quraysh, when Allah talks to Quraysh directly, one, which we'll get to eventually, inshallah, one starts the sense, or one gets the sense, that the perception that is Allah demanding of them is not, although not physical and visual, but it is understanding that would be equal to the physical and visual. So, this brings us back to the, 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 the very notion that we discussed at the very beginning of the alam of shahada and ghayb, that there is the seen and unseen, and yet we are often, and remember when we talked about testifying to the unseen, and we said, we, we raised this whole issue, how can we testify to what we do not see, if it's alam, is the world of the unseen, and yet we are asked to testify to it. And we talked about back then what? That reality is both physical and non-physical. That you can perceive reality through several avenues. And that the Quran insists that reality can be reached through several avenues. And that the, the, the reality reached through physical and visual perception is not the only reality. This invokes this whole discourse which we covered already. And you'll see that in other verses even invoked to a larger extent and to greater depth. But you must not forget, in the same way that the Quranic text often er eradicates a distinction between past, present, and future, transcends causality when it's telling you a story. So, for example, in Surah Yusuf, you, you, it talks, it, it, it literally jumps from one event to the other without going through the, the causality. Very much reminds you of uh, the small particles that move without a medium in, you know, the, just in, in the theory of chaos. The Quran also often lapses this distinction between Seeing in a physical, visual sense, and seeing and testifying as to the non-physical and non-visual. And the avenues of knowledge then are expanded to more than the merely intellectual. And the Quran just often addresses it as a perception of the mind versus the perception of the heart. The, the, the authorist refers to Qulub. And offer it refers to Aqut. You'll be surprised that, or maybe not so surprised, among the the uh, some of the early tafsirs or commentaries, they would get into an argument about why does it say, have you not seen? Now, particularly the Ahl al-Hadith said, well, it said that because the Prophet was born, the year of the elephant. So it's reminding him of, of a visual, physical event. Otherwise, it would not have said, Alam Tara, have you not seen? Because the answer would be, no, I have not seen. Lam Ara. Simple. As you would again expect, 
those who did not like the literalist approach in that fashion responded and said that's rather close-minded. One is that even if he was born the year of the elephant, he was too young to see anything. Two is that you are completely ignoring the idea that one can know something so intimately although it does not belong to the realm of the physical and visual and tangible that it becomes as if it is seen and from that they get into which is more true the what is seen through the heart or see, seen through the eyes because as you know that in, in actually in, in postmodernism today we talk about how contingent and superficial is the, the the sensory perceptions of the eye what really matters nowadays we talk about this what really matters i'm not talking about islam what really matters is not what you see through your eyes but the actual mental image you form in your mind so we are discovering now that the material perception the, the, the not the, but the, the perception of the physical object is completely secondary to the mental construction that you have of the of the of the material image of the physical image when you read these discourses in the contemporary age they sound very much like the old historical discourses about anamtara which is more authentic seeing something physically and materially or the perception beyond the physical beyond the material i don't want to get into fitra because that's that's a completely complicated and different matter i mean i only said that it is true that there is some role for fitra but i didn't say what role at all and don't assume anything about the role of fitra because in fact it is far more complicated than what is what is very popular nowadays is the ahl al-hadith wahhabi salafi construction or school of thought about the fitra which basically says basically in a very simplistic form is you're born a muslim you know everything by intuition and and your fitra your instincts and that's the end of it and then you're corrupted and so that's it the usulis for the most part rejected this whole thing and the so do the sufis i mean so the the sufis refused to accept it in that in these simplistic terms So this gets us into what does fitra mean and all of that stuff, which is different. Interestingly, when we talk about this this event, we immediately talk about the birth of the Prophet ﷺ. The most popular report is that the Prophet was born the year of the elephant. But you should know that there are other reports. Uh, Muqatil, who has by now, you, you keep hearing his name all the time because he's one of the earliest commentators and probably the most influential commentators on, on the Quran. Muqatil said that, he, that the Prophet was born 40 years after the year of the Elf. And Kalbi, 40. Kalbi and Ubaid bin Amir said that the Prophet was born 23 years after the year of the elephant. The the report that is popular nowadays and that all Muslims 
learn uh, from an early age is that he was born the year of the elephant. But anyway, it's something that you should know. Now, okay, so what is the context or the story that Surah Al-Fil is talking about? Most of you have heard some version. The versions differ in many details. And I don't want to go in all the various details because then we, we, we'd never finish. There, there are many, many differences as to the specifics and details of the story. But for the most part, there are two main essential versions, and then within each version, there's all types of disagreements about specific details. One version comes from Ibn Abbas, the other comes from Muqatil and Kalbi, actually. But the, the one that I think is more popular nowadays is the Ibn Abbas version. That was not the version that was popular, let's say, 800 years ago. That's a, that's a version that was made popular, again, by the Wahhabis and Salafis and so on and so forth. The Ibn Abbas version. That Abraha, there, there was, let's just say, a man, who was a general, called Abraha, who is Ethiopian with the power base being in Yemen. Abraha was Christian. As the reports say, now what type of Christian, we really don't know. Because when Christian is such an amorphous term that it could, it could encompass all types of creeds, some of them that would hardly be identifiable as Christian today. So when we say that Abraha was Christian, that really doesn't say much at all other than he recognized Jesus in some form or another. That Abraha built a church or temple or religious structure of one sort or another in an area called Qulais. Actually, the structure itself was called Qulais. That his primary motivation in doing so was to create a fundamental religious center to which the Arabs would flock to. Now, in this version, Avraha is very keen about the conversion of Arabs to Christianity. And in this version, he is directly in competition with the Kaaba in Mecca, displeased with the fact that the Kaaba plays the role that it does in Arabia. This is all before Islam, of course. So he built this, this temple and then he writes to Najashi in Ethiopia, that's the king of Ethiopia. And whether this is the same Najashi that is supposed to convert later on to Islam and is supposed to accept the Muslim migrants who escaped persecution in Mecca to Abyssinia, is hotly debated. Probably not. Probably he's not the same. But anyway, that's, uh, he writes to the Najashi and says that, I intend to make Qulais the main area of pilgrimage for Arabs uh, instead of the Kaaba in Mecca. 
a man from Kunana hears about this and goes into the temple of Quraysh and according to the particular version that you read either spits and uh, ransacks it or defecates and pollutes it but one way or the other he ends up doing something that doesn't make it a very attractive place when Abraha hears of this he swears that he is going to destroy the Kaaba. And he will destroy the Kaaba, eradicating the centrality of Mecca. He takes off, he writes first to Najashi and says, send me elephants. According to the version that you are reading, Najashi either sends them in eight elephants or sends them one elephant or sends them 12 elephants. But of prime focus, and, and why does it matter? Because it says Ashab Al-Fil, the elephant. But you could be called the people of the elephant, despite of the fact that you had a hundred elephants. You know, in Arabic, it doesn't matter. So. so that led by a huge elephant, and even, let's say it's one elephant. And that this elephant was quite huge, big, and by his, by the way, his name was supposed to be Mahmoud, according to report. And he heads off to destroy the Kaaba. Along the way, he meets some resistance by some Arab tribes. He promptly defeats these Arab tribes. And in return for their lives, they decide to be scumbag traitors and lead him to the Kaaba. This is, for example, there is, an, there is a grave in Arabia to this very day where you stone uh, the, the grave of one of these fellows who is reported to have joined them to so on. Uh, heading to Mecca, the Meccans hear about the, 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 the coming Abyssinian Yemeni army that is going to destroy the Kaaba. And Abdul Muttalib, the grandfather of the Prophet, hearing upon this, decides there will be no resistance. And orders the Meccans to go hide in the nearby mountains. And Mecca is actually in the midst of a very mountainous area. And so you can see that why people can easily have fled to the, uh, to the mountains. And the only, then as the story continues, is that as the, the Abyssinian army grabs a hundred cattle or so camels or sheep or whatever they are that belong to Abdul Muttalib. And when Abdul Muttalib goes off to meet Abraha and negotiate with him, his only request is give me back my cattle. And Abraha, who is reported to have been a rather sort of a gentleman the sort says initially I respected you enormously now I don't I'm coming to destroy your Kaaba and the only thing you have to ask of me is your, your, your cattle and then Abdul Muttalib is supposed to have responded in the quite famous statement I am the caretaker of my cattle the Kaaba has its own caretaker Al-Ibl ana rabbuha walil bayt 
رب سيمنعه in one version or رب يمنعه in another version or رب يحميه in another version etc etc so the house has its protector the capital I am its protector in some version Abdul Muttalib is supposed to have said many people have sought to destroy the Kaaba before and he names a few such as Taba and Saif Bani Ziyazn which is an, a, a, a tribe uh, between Yemen and, and Mecca uh, and Kisra, Caesar. So Abdul Mutab is supposed to have important. Well, you know, before you, the, the Taba and, and 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 Caesar and Bani Ziyazn have all tried to destroy, and it, it it has they failed. So I'm sure you're going to fail as well. Now, of course, there are several points here. Is that from a historical perspective, and I don't want to to get into the details of that, but from a historical perspective, it has some significance exactly what happened. It's, it's quite remarkable that if, in fact, this version is true in its details, that means then the reputation of Mecca as a, as a religious center was widespread even to Abyssinia and Yemen. That then allows us to understand more about the role of the Prophet, etc., etc. But that, that's sort of the, that's more into the realm of Sira and the, the, than Tafsir. And in, if you would, if you study Sira, that's something that you spend a lot of time on analyzing and understanding and, and, and why is it important? What role Mecca uh, occupied, etc., etc. Now, if in fact there were previous enemies that have tried to destroy the Kaaba, that's also relevant to no avail. Uh, is it true that this was an object of destruction before? If that's the case, then it, it makes an enormous amount of difference how we understand the early years of the Prophet, in Mecca, when we talk about Sira as opposed to Tafsir. And one of the things, again, to remind you, and because I've realized I haven't been doing enough of that, and, and consequently I'm, I'm, it's a responsibility, is that the tendency in, in the contemporary is, uh, Wahhabi Salafi Islam is that you specialize in one thing, you become an expert in everything. So if you if you learn Arabic for that matter, <laughs> go to Saudi Arabia, you take two years of Arabic, then you are an expert in tafsir, fiqh, hadith. I don't mean you, I'm just saying generally. Uh, you know everything. If you learn how to re recite Quran, that's then you are next to Imam al-Shafi. Basically, you ask Imam al-Shafi to get up and he sit in his place. Usulis do things very differently. You specialize in fields, and you must demonstrate competence in each and every field. Sira, tafsir, fiqh, usul al-fiqh, qawad al-fiqhiyya, aqaid, etc., etc. And so you are only studying tafsir. You, you may not assume that any of this gives you special knowledge on sira. But it gives you a sense of how it does make a difference, is that one school of thought is that part of the success of the Islamic message is that Mecca was 
to a certain extent marginal to the superpowers of the world. And consequently, if you want to start a dawah, this is where it gets, gets significant. You sort of go off to the margins, to the periphery, and start it there and surprise your foes with your strength where it exists. I mean, if you, if, if you, those of you in the life of the Prophet class, you, you'd know that we talk about how, at what point the confrontation with the superpowers came in. That's, that's one school, this one school of interpretation in Sira is that it's really Mecca was on the periphery and when the Persians and the Byzantines noticed Muslim Islam, it was already too late. Muslims were already quite strong. Another school of thought says, no, you start in the heart of where the strength is, but not not political strength, but rather moral, spiritual strength. So you go to where who controls the definition of hipness in the world, <laughs> to put it in, in different terms and which was used to be disgusting. So it is not who has more arms or whatever, but who has the greatest influence upon culture, and that's where you start. Not, we're not talking about infiltrating anyone. We're talking about models for spreading a message. Let's say I want my... You know, my goal is to have Texas become Muslim. Some reason or another, I decide to. Do you go off to Waco or something like that and start there? Or do you start in Austin or Houston or Dallas? I mean, this, this is the type of thing that we get into. Where this became, like, when you look at the, the, the Dao of the Muslim Brotherhood, for example, they used to have these debates, very, in, very intense debates about it. And it all depends on their understanding of Sira. Because Muslims often try to model, try to use Sira as, as to learn lessons from. And so, but anyway, that's an issue of Sira. So, I mean, it's, it's a different matter altogether. And then we get into, well, you know, even if it was done one way in the past, does this mean we always have to do it the same way? We get into all these. If I ever give a halakha on Sira, specialized halakha, not, not the, 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 the stuff that I do for the masses or the popular stuff. Then we get into all the, the different schools of thought and who said what and what theories came up and, you know, all of the, the stuff. So you can see why even something like this occupies uh, scholars of the Quran. Now, the version of Muqatil and Kalbi, primarily Muqatil, they have a, 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 quite a different version. They say that there were Meccan youth who went to a Christian town in Abyssinia. The Christian town is called Surjayan. Surjayan. Surjayan was a rather lush in vegetation and a very beautiful place. 
they lit a campfire to cook a meal and sat down and ate. And after they finished eating, they picked up and left without putting out the fire. In the desert, you don't need to put out fires when you leave. What's the fire going to do? In fact, you sort of maybe do, do, make, do a favor to whoever comes after you, lest they need the fire. So, so they left they left it there and it it created a wildfire that burned Sir Jayan. When Najashi realized that these were the Meccan fellows who did this, he became quite upset, enraged, and sent Abraha to punish the Meccans by destroying the Kaaba. Now note the, the huge distinction between this version and the other version, right? One version has Christianity in one form or another actively trying to bring Arabs to it and has have the whole campaign against the Kaaba as a religious campaign. I want to destroy the Kaaba so you'll come and follow the, the, the temple in Yemen. Instead, the other one does what? It de-religizes it. No. it in other words, it, it renders the whole matter irreligious. It wasn't about Christianity or Islam or anything else. The other version is simply Abraham's pissed because these people burned one of their beautiful towns. And he's going to punish the Meccans. And what more effective way to punish them than destroy the very symbol of the specialness of Mecca. So you costed, you costed us Sir Jayan, we're going to cost you the Kaaba. This type of thing. Now, theologically does it make a difference? Yeah, if you talk about Aqaid, if this is a class in Aqidah, yes, it would. Because then we, you, you would get into, well, does this mean that Allah protects the Kaaba from any offense whatsoever? Or only religious challenges. Why is this relevant, by the way? Who can guess why would this even be an issue in Islamic history? Well, yeah, it wasn't, but it's not. It's uh, who, who went and, and actually bombarded the Kaaba? It, it was Muawiyah's son. Muawiyah's son, Yazid. Yeah, because, I mean... Then you get into uh, about what Yazid did when he bombarded the, the, the Kaaba with mangolins and so on in order to defeat rebels, which gets us into <laughs> contemporary rebellions like the, the, the 1980 rebellion or 1979 rebellion in, in the Kaaba in Saudi Arabia. I mean, you can see how everything starts feeding upon everything and where knowledge starts becoming exciting. But this, again, we, this is issue of Aqidah and we'll leave that because then we'll, we'll go on forever. Uh, also, it it goes back to the whole issue of centrality of, of, of Mecca. Was Mecca so central in Arabia? And consequently, when the Prophet challenged Mecca, it, all Arabia was following carefully to know what is going to happen. Or did people really look at this as, well, even if Mecca falls, 
that is not the that that does not mean that all of Arabia has folded as well. After Mecca falls, there are several Arab tribes that come come up and challenge the Muslim state and wage war. Right? This goes back to the whole issue of how central was Mecca to the Arabian scene. A very complicated matter and thing that helps us in the, in the same way that we seek to understand understand the divine intent. We seek to understand the divine intent through history. And when Allah chose Muhammad to commence the Islamic message in Mecca, why? Why was it Mecca as opposed to elsewhere? And the, should we learn anything from it? And Alam Tarak Al-Fala, a book about Sahab Al-Fil, invokes all of this and, you know, produces volumes upon it, etc., etc. But note again, in order to do any of this, you need to know what? You need to study what? History, context, but particularly history. And this is the historical imperative. And that's why it is sort of funny when you find contemporary Muslims so ahistorical. Among contemporary Muslims, there is sort of a resentment towards history. I mean, most, most Muslims are not interested in hearing anything about Islamic history beyond the companions. And not even that. The companions only part of their history. They treat history as if, why should I know anything about it? Amawiyin, Abbasiyin, Fatimiyin, this and that, uh, who cares? But it is funny by, by the, by, and it's ironic, by the standards of what took place in the Islamic civilization. Because the Islamic civilization created an imperative of historical inquiry that under the impact of contemporary Wahhabism has subsided and, and died. And history was basically seen as an aberration and a corruption of, of pure ideas and consequently unhelpful.